Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to remind you, peace of mind is tough to come by these days unless you have a Liberty Safe. With a Liberty Safe, you won't worry when you leave the house because you'll know your valuables are protected. And right now you can get free delivery to your home on any Liberty Safe. Go to LibertySafe.com for factory direct pricing. LibertySafe.com, made in the USA, lifetime warranty, and peace of mind. LibertySafe.com. This week, we have brought you the history of capitalism through the eyes of one of the greatest economists of our time. His name is Milton Friedman. He was unapologetic in his defense of the best political and economic philosophy known to man. Today, part four of our four-part chapter on Milton Friedman begins right now. of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. This week, through recordings he left behind, we've been having a conversation with the greatest defender of capitalism in the past century, Milton Friedman. He was unapologetic for the free market because he knew and understood the amazing benefits of the system that lifted billions of people out of poverty. That enabled him to be unafraid when defending wealth. Why is it we have so many millionaires and everything in the United States and we still have so many impoverished people who try to get up into the world? Why is it we have this lack of money where people who can't support themselves decently and get a decent job where all these big men are up on top making oodles and oodles of money. They don't need it. They can only eat that much, eat in a sleep in a bed. And what do you suppose they do it? If they don't eat it and don't, sli- uh, don't use it, what do you suppose they, they do They hoard it. They hoard it and they hoard it. You mean it. they put it under their pillows? That's right. No. They, they keep investing it. Investing it in That's what? That's right. Yeah. What are they invested in? Well, they invested in a lot of uh, different things that the little people need. Well, do they invest it in factories? Yes. Do some of that money end up in machines? Yes. Do those factories and machines provide ordinary working people with jobs or not? Where right. do you suppose the improvements in productivity come from except from the, re- the investment by people of their savings? But if you look at it over time, if you get a sense of proportion, the well-being of the ordinary people has been the main thing that has been improved by economic progress and economic growth and development. And residual, most residual hard cases of poverty today are the result, again, of a failure of government. Friedman appearing at a conference of bankers set them straight on the real cause of the Great Depression. It wasn't private industry. He also took on the Federal Reserve. There is hardly any view that is more widespread than the view that somehow or other the Great Depression was produced by a failure of private business. That view is held not only by those who are in favor of greater role of government. It is held by almost everybody. I venture to suggest that if you go to any bankers, the people who are here today at this banking conference, and if you talk to them, I venture to say nine out of ten of them 
if, if, if they didn't, hadn't heard what I'm going to say. <laughs> that nine out of ten of them would say, well, of course, the Great Depression was a failure of private business. It was due to an overextension, overspeculation in the 1920s, or it was due to an excessive concentration of wealth in the hands of the wealthy at the expense of the poor in the 1920s, or it was due to speculative investment abroad, or whatnot. But it was a failure of private business. And government had to step in in order to rescue private business from its own failure. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Great Depression was produced, in my opinion, and I may say this is a, not a random opinion. I will be glad to refer you to a several hundred page book in which it is documented. I won't tell you who the author is. <laughs> Mr. Eccles did that. It was produced, the Great Depression was produced by a failure of government, by a failure of monetary policy. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System to act in accordance with the intentions of those who established it. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System despite the presence of knowledge on the part of many of the people in the system about the right course of action. It's interesting to speculate for a moment about why this myth is so widespread. The answer is really very simple in this case. Private enterprise has no press agents. The free market has no press agents. The government has a great many press agents. The Federal Reserve has a great many press agents. And the Federal Reserve, of course, would never admit never proclaim that it produced the Great Depression. On the contrary. And again, I don't mean to be criticizing individuals. We're talking about the way institutions operate. You and I are the same as all the rest of us. We're all the same. The hardest thing in the world is for anybody to admit that he made a mistake. If any one of us makes a mistake, we can always find somebody else to blame. And if you read, as I have for my sins had to read the annual reports of the Federal Reserve System over a 50-year period. There's only one element of humor that lightens that test, and that is the cyclical fluctuation in the powers of the Federal Reserve. In a good year, when things are good, when the economy is booming, you will read that the Federal Reserve, by its wise policy, by its efficacious management of money has produced this fine situation. However, let things get bad, and all of a sudden the tone of the annual report is different. Then you discover that despite the best efforts of the Federal Reserve, outside forces combine to produce difficulties. Even at the depth of the Depression in 1933, when in the spring of that year, the Federal Reserve System, which had been established in order to prevent banking panics and keep banks from closing, when the Federal Reserve System itself closed its doors, and you had a banking holiday for seven days, and when, over the previous three years, a third of the banks of this country closed their doors and went broke because, in my opinion, of the poor policy followed by the Federal Reserve System. Even in 1933, if you read the annual report, 
you will discover how much worse things would have been if the Federal Reserve hadn't behaved so well. Now, as I say, I don't blame the members of the Federal Reserve for that. Any one of us would do the same thing. We have to find somebody to blame. But as an objective scholar, I can tell you what the facts are. The facts were that from 1929 to 1933, the total quantity of money in the United States, the amount of currency, the amount of bank deposits, what Mr. Eccles referred to as M2, that total amount of money declined by one-third. The total number of banks went down by one-third. And why did the quantity of money decline? It declined because the Federal Reserve System failed to prevent the decline. The Federal Reserve System could have prevented the decline at all times. There never was a moment during that period when the Federal Reserve did not have the power to prevent the decline in the quantity of money. If it had prevented the decline in the quantity of money, you might still have had a recession, but it would have been a garden variety recession. It would have been over in the middle of 1930 or early in 31 at the latest. It would not have been the major catastrophe, not only for this country, but throughout the rest of the world. The, uh, moreover, this is not only hindsight. At all times, the people at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and at a number of other banks were pleading with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington to do the right thing. At all times, there were people in Congress who were arguing that the Federal Reserve System should take a different course. At all times, there were outside commentators. One of the Canadian banks was particularly prescient. But there were other commentators who were pointing out the disastrous effects on the American economy of the restrictive policies that the Federal Reserve System was following and which was causing, was permitting and facilitating a whole series of bank runs. So the Great Depression was not produced by a failure of business. On the contrary, it was produced by a failure of government and a failure of government in an area in which responsibility had been assigned to government since the founding of this country. The Constitution of the United States it gives Congress the power to coin money and set the value thereof. And it was in the management of this fundamental function of government that government failed and produced the Great Depression. We have learned from that failure. The Federal Reserve will not fail in the same way again. This time it will fail in a different way. <laughs> this time it has been failing not by producing a Great Depression, but by producing an inflation. Because just as you will hear the story that it was business that was responsible for the Depression, so you will today hear the story that it is labor and management that are responsible for inflation. It is the same kind of a myth. Inflation is made in one place and one place only, Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., the chief source, immediate source of inflation, is a Greek temple on Constitution Avenue in which, which houses the Federal Reserve Board. An accomplice, and a major accomplice, of course, sits in the halls of Congress in Washington. They are a major accomplice because you tell them to be. The American people have been telling Congress for many years, spend more money on us, please. But they've been telling us, don't raise our taxes. 
Congress has been listening. It's been spending more money on you. But on the other hand, it's been very unwilling to raise taxes. As a result, it has imposed inflation as a tax. That's one tax that you don't have to vote for, but you have to pay. And when confronted by a college student who strongly believed in the redistribution of wealth, Freeman torpedoed his points calmly and rationally. You spoke a few times, you mentioned uh, distribution of wealth. Sure. But most of what I've heard you talking about has been about the distribution of income rather than about the distribution of wealth. Sure. Now, you wouldn't argue, at least I hope you wouldn't, that the person in, let's well, say, sure. let's say <laughs> India is genetically inferior, say, to the person in America. It's rather through the purely arbitrary circumstance of birth that he's in a country with a less developed economy and, or in a family that doesn't have as large a share of the capital. And that's that not something that he's to blame for. Well, I'm not so blaming anybody. Even if the free market system equitably works and everyone progresses an equal amount, that person who started out with less, a lesser share of the capital is still going to end up with a lesser share of the capital. Right. And there's nothing in the free market system that's going to enable him to make up for what was a purely arbitrary deficit in the first place. And given that the kind of people who become successful capitalists do not become that way by giving away their wealth voluntarily, isn't it necessary to forcibly redistribute wealth before you can begin to operate under a capitalist system? No, it is not. <laughs> now, but let's examine this argument. Because of course it's true. There's no justice in the distribution of income or wealth. I never would argue there is. Those who are wealthy don't deserve to be wealthy any more than those who are poor deserve to be poor. It's pure accident. And, and we might, but if you start to look at things that way, you're going to go down the wrong line. Because you're going to get back into this kind of a situation of destroying the good things. Destroying what is possible in the search of an impossible ideal. The only way in which you can redistribute effectively the wealth is by destroying the incentives to have wealth. And the question is, what is the way, what is the system which will offer those people who are so unlucky as to be born without uh, good positions, what is the system which will offer them the greatest opportunity? Well, one possible way of redistributing the wealth without affecting the incentives to earn as much income as possible is simply to have a 100% inheritance tax. Uh, but Since that, that won't not, affect the incentives, it's only after the person's I dead your, anyway. I beg your pardon. Uh, you're too, uh, I'm afraid, uh, uh, I don't know the family you come from. <laughs> I don't, uh, but as you grow up, you will discover that this is really a family society and not an individual society. We tend to talk about an individualist society, but it really isn't. It's a family society. And the greatest incentives of all the incentives that have really driven people on have largely been the incentives of family creation, a family of pursuing, of establishing their families on a decent system. What is the effect of 100% inheritance tax? The percent of a 100% inheritance tax is to encourage people to dissipate their wealth in high living. What's the harm in that? It. The harm in that is that where do you get the factories? Where do you get the machines? Where do you get the capital investment? Where do you get the incentive to improve technology? If what you're doing is to establish a society in which the incentive is for people 
who, if they by accident accumulate some wealth to waste it in frivolous entertainment. You know, the thing is that the thing that is amazing that people don't really recognize is the extent to which the market system has, in fact, encouraged people and enabled people to work hard and sacrifice in what I must confess I often regard as an irrational way for the benefit of their children. One of the most curious things to me in observation is that almost all people value the utility which their children will get from consumption higher than they value their own. Here are parents who have every reason to expect that their children will have a higher income than they ever had. And they scrimp and save in order to be able to leave something for their children. I think you are sort of like a bull in a china shop if you talk about the 100% inheritance tax having no incentive effect. It would destroy a continuing society. It would destroy a society well, you're saying in which would... there are links from one generation to the next. Those who believe in income inequality and wealth redistribution have ample and vocal advocates today. For capitalism and free market principles, it seems that since 2006, there hasn't been anyone quite like Milton Friedman. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company, and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond, and they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a 1,000 agents across the country, and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents I trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is. Real estate agents, I trust.com.